Support for Market Foolery comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. It's Tuesday, March 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Asset Management, Bill Barker. How are you? I'm well, thank you. You're looking dapper. I know this is an audio podcast, but you're looking you're looking like you have frankly far more important things to do than to be sitting in the studio with me. No, not more important. Just after <laughs> after work I'm going to a CFA thing and I just I like to look like I might, you know, it's kind of like when I go to my kids school. I don't know if you feel the same thing. I like to look like I might be employed. When I when I show up at their school, that's something I think I've gotten slightly better at over time. But uh, early in my parent career, going to schools, uh, I I didn't do a good enough job on that. Yeah, and so did your kids get teased? Uh, I don't know that they got teased. Uh, I mean, they got teased, but probably not because of that. We got retail news to get. Dad doesn't have a job. Look at him. No, no. I think to the extent that my job ever came up uh, in conversations that my kids had, a lot of times it was like, "He does what? <laughs> Wait, what? So is he on TV? No, he's not on TV." I get asked that by my kids. What do you do? What do you do? Yeah. See, there we are. I show up on you know podcasts. What? That's the only thing they know. No, let's take. We'll come back to this because I, I do. I do want to talk about what sort of a, a typical week is in the life of someone at Motley Fool Asset Management. Well, let's get to the retail news because there is legitimate retail news. Let's start with Target. Fourth quarter revenue was up ten percent. Digital sales up nearly thirty percent year over year. That's going in the right direction, but just not enough to impress Wall Street today and shares of Target down a little bit. Yeah, it's a product of where the stock has already been, and it's up 30% in the last year, so it's kind of caught up on already incorporated the holiday news earlier on. I think in January they had an investor day and revealed a lot of what the the numbers were through that point in time, so this isn't uh, a whole lot more. But uh, you know, the guidance going forward is is a little bit tepid, and it's a very difficult time for virtually all retailers. Now, Target did uh, announce, I think, that its uh, digital sales were up 29% digital channel sales. So that was pretty good. It was 34% uh, the year before, and not bad. So that's a small part of the operation. It's like a lot like Walmart. The digital is growing very quickly in comparison to the established business. This is, um, you know, in the same way that Best Buy just went through a really rough stretch to the point where it was perfectly reasonable to question how much longer Best Buy was going to last. Uh, shortly after Best Buy got a new CEO, Target got a new CEO, and and Brian Cornell, I think, is now he's now in his fourth year uh, as CEO. And again, the digital sales are not 
quite as high as probably investors would like them to be. Certainly, shareholders would like them to be. But they're going in the right direction, and I think, uh, in general, the the report card for Brian Cornell looks pretty good. He had a phenomenal first year as CEO. There was a little bit of a sophomore slump, but uh, in general, uh, I think you got to feel pretty good if you're a target shareholder about. His leadership and his team, and where this retailer is headed. Yeah, it's just you got two different and very tough wars: uh, the digital war and the uh, in-store war. And they're both tough these days. They're coming from uh, from behind against Amazon, obviously, and many other competitors out there. Where their competitive advantage is online, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I do see some competitive advantage in. Their stores, uh, but the store world is not where you want to have the majority of your assets, and that is where they have the majority of their assets, and they can outperform the competition and still be fighting the headwinds that are you know applicable to everybody. Uh, now they're not as tied to the problems with uh, malls necessarily, uh, but still they are. In a struggle to make the stores uh, relevant all the time in a world where the stores are less and less relevant. One business that is certainly more tied to malls is Nordstrom. And the Nordstrom family drama is seeping into the headlines. I, I don't want to make it sound more dramatic than it is, but the, the, the family has made no secret of the fact that they are looking to take their retail business private. And the latest iteration of this is that apparently the Nordstrom family offered $50 a share. Right now, the I think the family owns about 31% of Nordstrom. They offered $50 a share. The board rejected that offer, which I completely understand because right now it's trading above that. It's trading at right. it's uh, it, you know when the day started, it was at about $52 a share or just shy of that. So. Where do you think this is going next? It's not unusual for a board of directors to reject the first offer. That just makes pretty good sense. But do you think that the Nordstrom family is going to come back and say, all right, what about 55 What about $60 a share? Well, I think that so where the Nordstrom family is mentally operating from, I guess, is that moment in time when it became public that they were interested in taking the company public. And I think, I don't know what the date of that was, but the shares were trading a little bit above 40 at that time. And understandably, uh, the market reacted to that. Hey, there, there's interest by the family in taking uh, the company public, so the share price moved up. And now it's moved up 25 percent ish from from where it was. There, the bidders, the Nordstrom family, is still thinking, hey, the market had this at a value of 40 something. Uh, we're coming in at 50. It wouldn't be at 50 if we weren't in the market to buy it. So that's that's why the price is uh, 50 or north of 50. And I can imagine a scenario where they stick with their, their price and wait for the stock to come back down to, you know, down to earth. So I mentioned that the board of directors rejected this offer. It was a special committee advising the board that uh, was installed to evaluate this offer. 
So they go to the board and they say, look, you should reject this offer. If the board comes to you and says, all right, the special committee said reject this offer, what do you think? You think they should take this? No, I think that the the fact that the price is still above fifty uh, indicates to me if I'm at the board. Look, I'm if I'm if I'm on the board and I accept an offer for fifty while the stock is above fifty-two and things aren't a disaster, then I know I'm going to get sued, right? <laughs> Right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> for for just one moment, I forgot about the existence of lawyers. Yeah, there's no chance that that I'm not personally going to get sued for, um, you know, accepting that unless I have some sort of inside information that doesn't seem to exist that there is catastrophe afoot, and if we can get fifty dollars, we should get taken that while the getting's good. I don't think that's the case. I'm not implying there's anything like that, but uh, the market is continuing to value the company as if, whether it's the Nordstroms or somebody else, uh, there's value here and the bidding is has not finished. Class action lawsuits, particularly fun to be involved in those, or not so much. All right, I was only when in my uh, lawyer days, I was only involved in one, and it was. Uh, it was a fraud case, so it was it was fun. It was always fun to be in court. It was a rare thing when you're doing commercial litigation for a, a big law firm and you're a young lawyer to get the opportunity to go in court. And I had more opportunities when I uh, worked for the city of Philadelphia. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, adrenaline when you're in trial. That's that, I don't know if fun is the right word, but um, adrenaline filled. Is is definitely part of it. In terms of whether class action suit, it's also it's a different world. I mean, the class action bar is a very different world from the one that you're normally uh, up against when you're doing corporate law. But being in the courtroom, pretty much as depicted on television, nothing like it's depicted on television. There are fewer guns, <laughs> a lot less shouting. Uh, you know, people don't uh, tend to reveal anything that you don't know already on the stand. So not as fun, like every other part of life. Not as not fun. as fun as depicted on TV. I was hoping that Law and Order was the one show that was gonna. It was true to life. That was true to life. Um, before we dip into the full mailbag, I want to say thanks again to Rocket Mortgage. Look. The mortgage process is not fun. Speaking of things being as depicted, here's what's not depicted on television: uh, what it actually takes to go through and get a mortgage or refinance your home. Could be a Netflix series coming up. It, it, it could be a Netflix series because you know what? It takes a long time. Wait, wait. It's like set in the uh, you know '06, '07 era. You get you get the boom and then the bust. I like this. You remember the giant pool of money episode from uh, from Planet Money from This American Life and Planet Money that started it all. Started started Planet Money, and I think on the way up, um, you had a, it's a whole sort of boiler room kind of thing going, and then on the way, you know, I I think you've got something. I think you can pitch this. I think I can pitch this. Yeah. All right. You know, as long as we can get Rocket Mortgage, yeah, involved go back to pitching Rocket Mortgage. Well, that's we've the thing. Off script. That's here. the thing because, like, in my mind, Rocket Mortgage is sort of like the hero who swoops in and is like, "Let me save you from this nightmare of paperwork." Uh, Rocket Mortgage gives you the same level of confidence that Bill Barker has when he's walking into a courtroom. 
Uh, same level of confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing home loan or buying a home. It's simple. Rocket Mortgage allows you to fully understand all the details so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, that's the easiest part. Just go to rocketmortgage.com. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Uh, email from Matt Reynolds uh, in the wake of... Uh, can I interrupt? If you're going to do one thing with sure. an hour of time that you have today to listen to podcasts, stop listening to this one and, and go download Giant Pool of Money. It, it's, it's still, it's, it holds up 10 years later. I, can I just provide the counter to that? Um, which is uh, listen to the rest of this podcast, despite, despite all evidence to the contrary. Is the best stuff going to happen? Oh no, it's yeah, not. We're, we're I'm finished not gonna, with the best I'm stuff not, of this I'm podcast. Not gonna, I'm not going to lie to our, our listeners. Uh, I got some good questions for you in the next portion. Oh, fantastic! Um, no, I would say that. Uh, I mean, giant pool of money. That's that's great. I would also say if you have not watched the movie The Big Short, I would I would recommend that over listening to Giant Pool of Money in your car. No. What kind of danger fiend are you? Um, I like to live on the edge. <laughs> um, email from Matt Reynolds in the wake of our last uh, last week's episode when you were here, we were talking about among other things candles. Matt writes, "I imagine the blue citrus candle is a nod to blue. Uh, is that Curacao? Is that how you see yeah, Curacao? Curacao, which tastes like oranges but looks like a blue drink." When mixed with vodka, it's basically four loco for suburban moms. Here's what it does to you. And he sent a, a YouTube link of a news story from a few years back where uh, a woman attending a Kansas City Royals game uh, got kind of drunk and and jumped into the fountain that they've got out there at uh, out in center field. Uh, Matt continues. Speaking of Kansas City, and this again goes back to the last time you were here. Uh, WPP acquired VML, which is a Kansas City-based ad agency that made its name on digital advertising, social media, etc. Uh, so thank you for that. Which leads back to uh, so last time you were here, one of the things we talked about was television networks experimenting with reducing their ad load, and it started with um, NBC coming out and saying we're looking to reduce ads by about 10% or so per hour. Fox just upped the ante significantly. The Wall Street Journal reporting today that Joe Marchese, who is the head of Fox Network ad sales, says he wants to reduce commercial time across the broadcast network to two minutes an hour. Not by two minutes an hour. He wants there to be two minutes of ads per hour on broadcast television on Fox by the year 2020. That's going to be fascinating to see if they can pull that off, because that's a massive drop. And among other things, they would need to not only start charging a lot more for their ads, they would need to either provide significant guarantees in terms of audience, or they would need to completely reorient advertisers' thinking about what should be measurable in their ads. Yeah, or just embed ads more and more around the edges of the broadcast rather than cutting away to commercials. Maybe I don't know. Say you say you're doing a football game. Like I don't know what's being measured here exactly, but if you're doing a football game, you just leave the cameras on during the commercial break or for a large chunk of it, and just have the edges of the screen tell you about Budweiser or something like that, and then say you're only doing two minutes 
of, of pure commercial time. Maybe I don't know the Fox News or or whatever. You could you could keep sort of squeezing the edges of the screen in in a certain way because it's hard to see how they're going to pull off going from what is it 15 16 minutes of commercials an hour to two it's about that yeah about 16 minutes on broadcast television you're not you're not going to be able to you know octuple your prices and and keep the same amount of revenue coming in unless you've got a plan to get ads in product placement whatever it is i i would think i would think- i'm not smart enough to figure out how you do that and survive well and he was very specific that this refers to broadcast as opposed to over the top digital it's it's entirely possible that their fox like disney like a lot of other networks uh is working on a plan for digital over the top uh, subscription based models okay yeah well, that, yeah. If you can get people to pay straight up for everything they're willing to pay for, whether that's sports and then um, you know just your you've got your sitcoms and stuff where you're have keeping the eight minutes per half hour or whatever it is, right. or get that down to six and a half or something. I don't or know. I, I pay a subscription and I'm getting The Simpsons and Brooklyn Nine One One and all that sort of thing, yeah. or whatever that show is. Family Guy, all those. But we were talking about the difference between the podcast uh, economics of advertising on a podcast and and TV, and one of the reasons, I guess, why for WPP and your third parties who are doing the commercials, creating them, placing them, doing all that, is why are they necessary? Well, to make to shoot a commercial very complex, you've got to have a director, you've got to have a producer, you've got to have a casting agent to cast a thing. Doing a podcast, like you you're the talent, right? You're reading out the whole thing. And all all you do have to do correct me if I'm wrong, somebody writes a script and then you you know, because you have that improv background, professional improv background, you can go and take that further than the you know the other guys. But but they're paying for your talent, which is easier than paying like twenty people for their talents or more when you're filming a commercial. It's also a lot cheaper. Right, right. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. You're doing the work of twenty. Well, and they're they're also thirty, perhaps. I mean, depending on the commercial. Is it, I mean, if if Michael Bay is directing this commercial, one, and there are explosions. One of those dilly dilly commercials. There are like eighty, ninety people in there. I, I, again, you're not, doing all of their work. Not a beer drinker, but I love the fact that the the head of that division of the Budweiser company came out and said, oh, yeah, those are catchy ads. They're not doing a damn thing to sell this beer. <laughs> I forget where it was, but he was interviewed somewhere, and he said, oh, no, 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 our sales have not gone up one case because of those commercials. So I was at a conference a couple of years back, and it was a consumer goods conference, and I watched the Anheuser-Busch or whatever Part of it, um, the company it was that was presenting, and I don't know if it was the CEO there or who. It was uh, it was in Paris, so I think a lot of higher name people showed up for this conference than normally. You wouldn't normally get a CEO for a lot of these conferences, and uh, he basically he's got his twenty minute talk, and then it takes ten minutes from the audience, and all he did was talk about the Super Bowl commercials. It was as if. What Budweiser is is a commercial company that happens to sell beer, and and that was and 
that's probably the case, you know, in in some ways. Is if the commercials are things that work, uh, that is what investors need to know for a product like Budweiser, because there are no, I don't know, they they extend the brand in various ways, and they're probably Bud Zero or whatever it is that they're trying to do with with it. But uh, either the commercials are catchy and work or not. Well, and and the apparel equivalent that, uh, equivalent of that is Nike. Nike has a phenomenal track. Whoever Nike has hired to make their television commercials, that firm is absolutely crushing it because they produce amazing commercials. I would point out, however, that as great as those commercials have been over the last two years, that ha- clearly they haven't been moving the needle in terms of footwear sales and apparel sales because Nike's been struggling of late. Uh, yeah, well, it's uh, it's not as easy a vehicle TV to distribute your advertising, whether it's great or not, as it used to be, because it's all podcasts now. It's all about the podcast. It's all about podcasts. Uh, thank you to Matt Reynolds uh, for uh, for the email. Uh, you can email us marketfoolery at fool is our email address. And if you want details on our listener meetup at South by Southwest, which will be next Monday, the twelfth. Drop an email to marketfoolery at fool.com. I will be there. Producer Dan Boyd, uh, Dylan Lewis from Industry Focus will be there. So uh, we're we're excited to. to our, we've already gotten some emails, so we're excited about this. And what else is going to be there? Uh, at South, uh, well, food and alcohol is going to be there, and some MFAM swag. And I mean, not to ruin the surprise. Not to ruin the surprise, but yes, in fact, yesterday I was on the second floor. And Bill Barker gave me literally a bag full of Motley Fool Asset Management branded stuff. I'm not going to say what it is. I'm just going to say it's a variety of stuff, and I will have that on me in Austin, Texas, at the listener meetup. So, so come on by. Um, what is a typical week like for you when you're not in this studio? Because because you and the Motley Fool Asset Management team, all kidding aside, you're 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 managing assets. We are managing assets, as the name suggests. You're managing assets, but it's also a significant. And I don't know to what extent the number is public as of the latest public filing, but uh, it's all out there. Is it all out there? It's okay. all out there. We manage a couple billion. Okay, that's that's wow. That's uh, that's a lot of zeros. Yeah, no, I, I show up on this podcast and I play the role of a clown for you, <laughs> but, I, I'm, but then I'm, I leave here and I help a you know a, an experienced and successful you know team of of. Uh, Portfolio managers uh, manage a couple billion. Is earnings season exciting for you and your colleagues, or is it uh, is it hectic, or is it very focused? Because you've just got you've got the companies that are in uh, the funds that you manage, and then maybe you've got your watch list, but you're not you're not looking across the universe and saying, "Gosh, we got to cover hundreds and hundreds of companies." We've just We've got our own universe, and that's what we're focused on. No, so there are six of us. We we run a couple, three mutual funds. You can look them up. By the way, you were supposed to refer to uh, the team you know, as a five star fund manager team because we we back to five stars. But nice. Uh, and uh, and I'm really referring to the team, not not myself. No, you would never. I was take waiting that credit for you to refer <laughs> to any of us in in any positive way, which would be unique. What what is a typical week? So there there's about forty about forty stocks in in one of our funds, and uh, we're going to turn over about twenty five percent of that. If you look at our past record, it's all out there, Morningstar, wherever you want to look up the data. Uh, so that's maybe 10, 10 stocks in the course of a year that we're going to sell by 
10 different ones. Uh, oftentimes, we're just going to buy something we've already owned. A lot of the time, we're going to buy something that we've been following either from our, a lot of us, all of us worked on the newsletters at one time or another. Uh, so, we know things from, uh, have followed things for you know, a long time. And between six of us turning over 10 ideas a year, three different portfolios with some overlapping holdings, you're only looking for maybe three, four uh, brand new things a year, which makes the work, if you, as long as you've done the work right buying things the first time and you're intending to be an investor rather than flipping shares a lot, then it makes the work easier. See, this syncs up with what Joe Mager was talking about. And uh, Joe was uh, here last week and was, uh, I interviewed him for Motley Fool Money. Um, and that was one of the things he was talking about was just the the very small number much smaller than i think certainly it's smaller than i was expecting and and i'm sure it's smaller than most people are expecting when in the course of his day-to-day life he talks about what he does for a living there's an assumption of oh you must be covering hundreds of stocks and and dealing with them in your uh, you know in the funds at lakehouse capital and for for joe it's a very small number well, you're creating too many taxes. Even if you were good at that, uh, at constantly finding something that's a little bit better than the good thing you already own, even if you would be one of the very rare people that can get in and out of stocks in, in a, a good way rather than finding good companies and, and being invested in them for years, uh, you're creating taxable events for, for your shareholders all the time um, by doing so. And so, there's a lot of advantages to being an investor rather than a trader. And, and one of them is the lower taxes. Uh, and the other is that uh, you know when you get something right, you don't have to you follow it, but you don't have to rethink. Oh, is this you know, is is this the right price down to down to the dollar? If it isn't, do I have something else on the watch list that I think is you know three percent better today? That's people do that. They're not usually successful. When you go to these fancy CFA dinners, like you go to on a pretty regular basis, and you you're talking to your colleagues in the asset management world, what is the reaction when you say, "Oh, I work at Motley Fool Asset Management"? Uh, the reaction 100% of the time is, I didn't know you guys had mutual funds. <laughs> 100%? Yes. There's never been a time where, where someone in the industry says, oh, yeah, no, I know you guys. No. Wow. I mean, it, it, I, we, we were talking about this. It happened to somebody in the group once. And it was but like, it was somebody who already should have known. It was like a unicorn. Like Tony Arista had already talked to that person and told them, and they they remember they were their memory was jogged by seeing him again. It's like you were the guy three years ago. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, working on some mutuals. Oh, that's right. You told me you managed. I forgot between that moment and today. So uh, what that tells me is more CFAs but, but look, need to be listening look, to market forward. You know. Tens of there's thousands and thousands of mutual funds out of there, and a lot of companies that you've never heard of managing them, and some that you have, and you've heard of the bigger ones, and and uh, so we're we're in a, a group uh, with many others of not being as well known. We're certainly not as well known as the rest of the company. I, I think this is an opportunity to to add or the podcast, some which your, is like some... everybody knows that you do a podcast. Not really. No. Have uh, you been stopped for an, uh, an autograph yet? Uh, no. 
that's it's going to happen in Austin. I, I'm I telling you. <laughs> I, I say, yeah, if anybody asks for an autograph, they get some MFM you know swag from me. No, see, I was just going to say, because you're not going to be there, I was just going to say, no. Actually, if you ask for an autograph, no MFM swag for you. <laughs> None whatsoever. Don't listen to him, people. He's lying. Bill Barker, we're going to edit that part out. Uh, Bill Barker <laughs> from Motley Fool Asset Management, which you can read, Bill and his colleagues. Go to foolfunds.com and you can sign up for declarations, which is the free monthly newsletter. And it's great content. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.